My name is Diret Ladi. I'm a Principal State Law Advisor for International Law in the Department of International Relations and Cooperation of South Africa. Uh, my topic for today will be the use of force in self-defense against non-state actors. International law on the use of force, particularly as it pertains to self-defense, is extremely important but also very controversial. Um, why is it important? Because the UN Charter, the building block of modern international law in its preamble, provides that the purposes of the United Nations is to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. If this objective is to be realized, then determining the precise scope and the limits of the use of force becomes extremely important. But it is also very controversial. It's controversial because there are wide and varying um, approaches to the use of force in international law. On the one hand, there is a very generous and permissive approach to international law, to the use of force, which would accord the state wishing to exercise the use of force a wide margin of discretion as to when, how, and under what circumstances to exercise force. But on the other hand, there is a narrow and restrictive approach to the use of force, which would place a greater emphasis on the prohibition on the use of force. The debate between these two approaches often takes place in the context of policy discussions, such as um, the permissibility of drone attacks or targeted killings, and even questions relating to preemptive strikes and so on. But there are real international law questions that flow from this debate, including questions relating to interpretation, interpretation of treaties, and in particular interpretation of the UN Charter, but also questions about how different principles of international law interact and relate with one another. The question that I wish to pose today, and perhaps offer a simple response, is whether international law, as it currently stands, permits the use of force in self-defense against non-state actors in the territory of another state. There has been a trend in recent years, and in recent years authors and scholars have advanced a proposition to the effect that modern international law permits a state to use force in the territory of another state against non-state actors without the consent of the state, even in situations where the state on whose territory force is going to be used um, their, the conduct of the non-state actors cannot be attributed to them. In order to properly assess this question, it is of course important to look at the UN Charter, and there are two important provisions in this respect. The first provision is Article 2.4, and as you know, Article 2.4 provides that a state may not use force um, against the first, the territorial integrity of another state, and also against the sovereignty of another state. The second provision, which is important, is an exception to this first one, and that is Article 51. And Article 51 provides that a state may use force in self-defense if there has been an armed attack or if an armed attack has taken place. Now, two main arguments in support of the proposition that a state may use force in the territory of another state against non-state actors have been advanced specifically relying on Article 51. The first argument the first argument would focus on the phrase armed attack. The argument goes, there is nothing in Article 51 that suggests that the attack must emanate from another state. Article 51 simply says, 
where an armed attack has taken place and not where an armed attack by a state has taken place. And so the argument goes, if a non-state actor initiates an attack against the state, then the latter may respond um, by using force in compliance with Article 51. The second argument, also based on Article 51, is that Article 51 refers to the inherent right of self-defense. And here the argument goes, inherent must refer to customary international law. And so to determine the totality of the law relating to self-defense, one must look not only at Article 51, but one must look, in fact, at customary international law as well. Now, both of these points are valid points. But what they call for is not an acceptance sans interrogation of the proposition, but rather they call for a good faith and contextual interpretation of Article 51 taking into account state practice. And indeed, the International Court of Justice has over the years given interpretations of Article 51 and in this process has developed a fairly consistent reasoning with respect to Article 51 and specifically what an armed attack means. In the military and paramilitary activities case, for example, the court stated, and I quote, an armed attack may be understood as including not merely actions by regular forces across an international border, but also the sending by or on behalf of a state of armed bands, groups, irregulars or mercenaries which carry out acts of armed force, unquote. It seems what the court is saying is that to qualify as an armed attack, acts of non-state actors must be attributable or imputable on the authorities of the, the state where the alleged act of self-defense would be taking place. This reasoning was confirmed, of course, in the, the, the advisory opinion on the construction of the wall case, in which the court stated that an armed attack in Article 51 means an attack by one state against another state. Again, also in the armed activities in the territories of the Congo case, the court determined that actions of the ADF, which is a non-state actor in the DRC, could not be imputed on the DRC and therefore could not form the basis of a claim of self-defense by Uganda. So it appears that the court has definitively determined, at least for itself, that an armed attack means an armed attack by a state and the only way that it can be an armed attack by a non-state actor is if those actions are imputable on the state on which the act of self-defense will be carried out. But what about the customary international law arguments? And indeed, in the military and paramilitary activities case, the court not only confirmed that customary international law relating to self-defense continues to exist notwithstanding Article 51, but in fact stated that, the, that Article 51 did not impair the inherent right um, that is contained in customary international law. And here, those authors who would advance the proposition would point to the Caroline Incident of 1837. The Caroline Incident of 1837 is often advanced as evidence of a customary international law norm to the effect that a state may in fact use force in the territory of another state uh, against non-state actors. In the Caroline Incident, a vessel, the Caroline, was involved in certain acts against um, um, the British government in then British-controlled Canada and the British government used force against the Caroline incident in the territories of the United States, or, in, or rather in the territorial waters of the United States. On the basis of an exchange of letters between the foreign ministers of the two countries, it is argued that the two countries adopt a posture 
that in fact the use of force is permissible against non-state non actors in the territory of another state. The argument is based on the fact that in the exchange of letters, while there are differences of opinion, the differences of opinion relate not so much to the permissibility of the use of force in those instances, but rather to the question of proportionality. However, a few things have to be borne in mind. The first thing is that at the time of the Caroline incident, international law in fact did not prohibit the use of force, such that justifications for the use of force were normally not legal justifications or not intended to act as a legal shield against wrongfulness. Moreover, whatever the law was in 1842, there have been significant developments in the interim period to warrant a cautious approach to treating um, the Caroline incidents and the exchanges um, of letters with respect to the, the, um, um, the Caroline incident as determinative of the content of international law. There have been um, developments such as uh, the, the adoption of the Kellogg-Briand Pact and, of course, most importantly, the United Nations Charter in 1945. Because of the centrality of the United Nations Charter, it is perhaps better to look at post-Article 51 state practice as aids of interpreting Article 51 rather than trying to develop a competing vision of self-defense. And indeed, several authors have done this. And generally, two categories of state practice have been advanced in this regard. The first relates to responses to the 9-11 attacks. Uh, and in particular, these would include the U.S. war in Afghanistan and the adoption of Security Council resolutions 1868 and 1873. The second relates to more general state practices occurring more recently um, and there's a number of them but the two that are consistently cited in literature refers to the Turkish incursion into northern Iraq in response to attacks by the Kurdistan Workers Party and the second one that is consistently cited is the attacks by Israel um, um, into Lebanon in response to the Hezbollah attacks. With respect to this latter category it's important in assessing um, its value as an interpretative tool to look not only at the existence of the practice but also to look at the responses from other states to this practice. And indeed with respect to both of these and indeed the others that are also cited, one finds that there is sufficient criticism and objection from other states to warrant a cautious approach in treating them as um, interpretative tools to Article 51. For example, with respect to the Turkish invasion into um, northern Iraq, you have the European Union um, High Representative for Foreign Affairs calling this a violation of the territorial integrity of Iraq. Um, you also have the Foreign Minister of Australia, the, the UN Secretary General um, calling for the withdrawal of um, Turkey and asking it to respect the sovereignty of Iraq. Similarly, with respect to the Israeli attacks into Lebanon, which, by the way, the responses to that were captured in a Security Council um, debate, you have criticism from countries such as Argentina, Russia, Ghana, uh, Ghana China, um, and Qatar, all of them suggesting in different ways 
that the actions are a violation of international law. The point that I am making is not that the acts were lawful or not lawful. The simple point that I'm making is that the responses to these attacks um, that are often used um, to support the proposition um, were varied and there were sufficient number of countries that expressed caution and concern and criticism that we should be careful in treating this as a model um, practice for the interpretation of Article 51. With respect to the responses to the 9-11 attacks, perhaps the best place to start here is with the U.S. war in Afghanistan. And certainly one thing that is clear is that at the time of um, um, the U.S. war in Afghanistan, very few countries, if any, criticized U.S. action. The question, however, is whether or not, in fact, the U.S. war on Afghanistan is analogous to the proposition. In other words, it is questionable whether the U.S. war in Afghanistan amounts to, an, to the use of force by a state against non-state actors in the territory of another state. In the period leading up to the, uh, the attack, the U.S. attack on Afghanistan, the rhetoric from the U.S. administration was such as to uh, impute the conduct of the non-state actors onto the authorities, in particular the Taliban. And so it is not quite clear that the action, the U.S. war in Afghanistan, qualifies as supportive of the proposition that a state um, can use force on the territory of another state um, in the absence of its consent against non-state actors where the actions of the non-state actors cannot be imputed onto the state in question. With respect to Resolution 1368 and 1373, if one studies the resolutions very carefully, there is nothing in the resolutions that is used to advance the proposition. The resolutions contain a condemnation of the attacks and separately contain um, a reaffirmation of the right to self-defense. Absolutely nothing suggests in those resolutions that a state may use force on the territory of another state um, against non-state actors without the consent of the state where, where the use of force is going to be applied. Article 51 in the Charter exists not in a vacuum, but it exists together with other principles of international law, including the principles relating to territorial in integrity, sovereignty, and of course the prohibition on the use of force. Interpreting Article 51 to permit the use of force against non-state actors on the territory of an innocent state without the consent of that state would render meaningless any notion of territorial integrity or sovereignty. I thank you.